The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Our guest today is Dr. Ashiana Mboya. Dr. Mboya is an international lawyer with degrees from Georgetown University Law Center and the University of Nairobi. She has been a MacArthur Foundation visiting scholar in South Africa, served as a consultant for UNICEF and the World Bank, and has authored over 20 books that are widely used in UNICEF's programs. More recently, Dr. Mboya authored the chapter Empowering Women Through the Law, which was published in the Encyclopedia of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, Gender Equality. Atiana, thank you for returning to our podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about your paper and the collection that it's part of? Yeah, the paper is uh, part of a collection that's been put together by scholars around the world to mark uh, the 75th anniversary of the establishment of the United Nations. And, uh, and so there's a, a number of different encyclopedia that are being published this year. And this is a gender equality encyclopedia um, that reflects the fifth goal of the sustainable development goals. And, um, and my paper basically looks at the role of law in uh, empowering women around the world. So what's your history with the sustainable development goals? One way I could say I have a history of them is just having grown up and come from a developing country and worked in women's rights as sort of my first career out of law school. Um, you know, the, the law and development nexus is, is really the context in which I was working as a young lawyer. And, uh, and then after coming to the US and consulting at the World Bank, again, I was working in development programs that focused on gender issues. And, uh, and then now I also teach at Emory a course on uh, law, sustainability and development. So always keeping track of what's happening in the development field um, for my courses right now and also for my writing. How did you get involved in this specific project? Um, it was just a, a group of scholars that reached out in one of the groups that I'm involved in. Um, uh, so it's a women's uh, law group on Facebook. And uh, they said, you know, it's the 75th anniversary. We're looking for writers. And gender equality was one of the encyclopedia they were looking for writers for. And I was happy to be able to contribute. So what were some of the things you thought about when you were writing your article? What needs were you trying to meet in your, in your specific article that hadn't been met before? And what perspectives did you bring to it that were unique or that you specifically wanted to have included? I think the need that I really wanted to bring out was really the role of law in the, you know, sort of the emergence of the women's movement, not just in the West, but also in the East, and how, you know, we now have an, an international women's movement around the world. Um, but it, we don't usually speak of it in terms of, you know, sort of law and how law has in many ways reinforced and had an impact on how that movement has been shaped over time. So that was the contribution I wanted to make, tracking the beginnings from, um, you know, the Seneca Falls Convention here in the US, um, and then a small 
sort of conference that happened in the East in, uh, in Persia, modern day Iran, and then just trying to track the role of, of I ended up focusing on secular law because that's really where my, my training has been in. But I really feel that, you know, sort of religious law would be a, another area to look at. So the role of religious law in women's emancipation or even women's oppression. And then of course, given the fact that secular law has its roots in, in religion, you know, when we're looking at law in the US, we know that it really has its roots in Christianity. Um, and in many ways you can see that the women's movement is one that emerges out of a, a certain religious context that then progressively becomes separated from its religious roots. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, about how the women's movement in the US specifically kind of came from religious roots and then eventually separated from them? I think, well, I think one of the really uh, uh, clear examples of that is when we look at the law of coverture, for example, you know, when a woman got married, her identity, her belongings, everything she had became subsumed into this one identity that sort of the man and the woman became upon marriage. And that identity was the male one. And that male identity, that patriarchal male identity really traces back to, um, to Christianity and the Bible and the, and the whole idea of, you know, the man being the head of the home, et cetera. So those, that's really the root of that idea of coverture, which, um, which in many ways disenfranchised women are not, okay? So um, as we look at it over time and the battle, you know, sort of the Equal Pay Act by the 20th century, that sort of, if you like, is, is the final coffin and coverture and in many ways, um, we, we don't think about how those new developments that happened centuries later really had their roots in a certain understanding of male-female relations that came out of um, Christian theology. Um, and then of course, the other example that I, I just mentioned briefly in that paper is one that comes out of Muslim theology with Fatima Baraghani in, in Iran and how in that context, she was really challenging the idea that um, um, that women were subordinate to men, which, which was symbolized by the veil. And so at this conference in Badash, the little hamlet in Iran, she basically appeared unveiled at this conference where she was the only woman. And um, as I read about that, I found it really fascinating because the men that were gathered at that conference were in theory men that were also pushing for uh, if you like, sort of a greater open and spiritual spaces in Iran. And, and they recognized that, you know, Fatima Baraghani, also known as Tahere, was an unusual woman, a prodigy. You know, she was a poet. She wrote um, dissertations and books. And so for that reason, they felt she belonged in that gathering. But when she unveiled herself, you know, some of them sort of ran away from the gathering and one was reported to have cut his throat because, you know, it was, it was like blasphemous that she was doing this kind of thing. So it's very interesting that this is happening in, in the very same year, 1848, that across in the West, we then have Seneca Falls Convention happening. So, so in some ways, I, was, uh, I felt like there was uh, sort of a global, if you like, East-West awakening happening at the same time for women's rights, while in the East, it was represented by this one woman, Tahere. In the West, it was being represented by upper-class white women in Seneca Falls. Yeah, that was one of the things I really liked about reading your paper, actually, that it did include a lot of, it had a very global perspective and it included so much new information. It was very new for me because my background and understanding of the women's rights movement was very solidly based in the United States. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess because mine comes from, you know, having grown up and, and studied in Kenya and first worked in women's rights in Kenya. So, you know, I'm always, I always have a, an eye to, you know, what's happening to the women where I grew up, you know, that's even though, of course, I've made my home in, in the U.S. now. I also really appreciated how you showed those, like you were talking about earlier, the specific connections. One of the things you talked about was how the 15th Amendment's exclusion of sex and gender equality or rights led to white feminists actually turning against voting rights for African-Americans. Yeah, because the 15th Amendment basically gave voting rights to, to black men. Okay, so, so of course, the unspoken thing there is that black women, too, did not have rights under the 15th Amendment. Um, but uh, in many ways, of course, the women's movement was also riding on the civil rights movement um, when we look at that relationship. And the suggestion is there was an expectation that victories that came through the civil rights movement would also be victories for the women's rights movement ignoring the fact that the women's rights movement was primarily an upper-class white movement, you know. Um, and so then later on, by the time the 19th Amendment comes into being, it becomes clear that really the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment are very connected. In many ways, the 19th Amendment is, if you like, um, correcting what the 15th Amendment fails to include, which was the enfranchisement of, of women. But of course, the problem with the 19th Amendment is that um, it didn't take into account um, the, the lived experiences of African-American women. So they were still left out even after this sort of second victory that happened uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Can you tell me a little bit about how your background in vulnerability theory impacted the way that you wrote this paper? Vulnerability theory is basically, what I like about it is that it, it, it compels you to look at sort of everybody that's in the picture on a given issue and what their positioning is, what they're losing or gaining from that issue. And, and so even though I was focusing on women's rights and the role of law, um, I really felt that, you know, that the vulnerability lens was one of the reasons why I was able to cast a more global view of the women's movement rather than focusing it just on um, sort of the American experience, knowing that, um, you know, there were victories being won also in other places of the world, like New Zealand, for example. And, you know, like I said, there was sort of the 19th century impact from Persia, for example. And then as we get into the second wave of feminism, you know, the third world women also come into the picture. So I really like the fact that, you know, vulnerability analysis and how it's, it really emphasizes this idea of universality, the universal human condition and a universal, if you like, human experience from life to death also um, is important for looking at this universal women's movement. Okay, so it's a global, it's a global phenomenon, much as, of course, the victories are very specific and local, um, depending on what your, your particular issues are in a given part of the world. What would you like the impact of your paper to be? I'm hoping that it can be a starting point for um, people interested in the women's movement globally to research further the connections between, um, you know, women's suffrage in different parts of the world and, and potentially bring together a, a universal platform of, of women's awakening, empowerment, and agency. Um, so, you know, if someone is doing work or wants to find out more about, you know, what's happening with women in Muslim countries or in the East, and, um, you know, from that time of that conference in Badash, tracking what's been happening with, with women from, uh, 
if you like, a Muslim religious background or even other religious backgrounds, I'm hoping that that paper can spark that interest. And if you want to look at, say, African women's experiences, you know, I give the specific example of Kenya, which I'm very familiar with, um, you know, you can have something to, to spark your interest and, and see, you know, what are some of the changes we can see, for example, in African countries um, in the area of law that um, making lives, women's lives better, et cetera. And then, of course, right here in the US, when we look at um, the Equal Rights Amendment, the era, and, and how, you know, we finally have, yay, Virginia ratified, you know, we have, we have the number of states there. And so, so that's something to look at even right here and see whether maybe in the next administration, something would happen in era may become law in America, which would take us to the next level of, of victories and equality in this country as well. What will your next project be? Are you already working on something? Well, my next project is actually um, trying to get a, a grip on my book project, which is looking at, um, at, at climate change and the role of law in climate change. And my, my focus had really been looking at smallholder women farmers and the impact of climate change on their lives and how the global climate regime actually has impacts all the way to sort of smallholder farmer level. So that's that's the book that I'm hoping to have a draft out of in the next few months. That sounds like a really exciting project. It is, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the research is has been done, but then a lot of it also, you know, I'm hoping to do more interviews um, when I'm in Kenya in the next few months um, to be able to bring that into that book. Uh, what would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? I think the main thing to remember is that the struggle for women's rights is not over. It's far from over. It's a universal struggle. It's uneven around the world. And, uh, you know, victories in one part of the world are very encouraging for women in other parts of the world to help keep them motivated to the extent that we can form co connections and collaborations and support networks um, by women all over the world. I think the sooner we'll see um, gender equality become a reality universally. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate that. I enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. You can find a link to Dr. Mboya's paper in the description of this episode on SoundCloud. Thanks for tuning in.